When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. I'm joined by professional vacationer Thea Leonard-Dutzi, who just said to me, incidentally, before we take this bit, that I use this opportunity to insult you. Yes, me. You. You. (laughs) Uh, But I'm not going to. I'm just simply saying we've both had exotic holidays in the British Isles. We're both back. Neither of us are particularly tan, although you do look healthier than I do. I'm, I'm ruddy from Scotland. You are ruddy. How was it? Uh, it was incredible. You did actually... I, I, oh, I'm, I, I, yeah, I can't, you know, I can't I be want, sarcastic. Yeah, all or, I want when someone goes on holiday in Britain to come back and be sarcastic about it. So I saw you, I, I, I came up to you when you came out. Oh, hi, Thea. How was the holiday in Scotland? And you oh, it was absolutely wonderful. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to hear that. Was it, was it cold? Uh, well, I was Windy. walking all the time, so I wasn't mm, too cold, yeah. apart from when I was on top of Ben Nevis, when I was absolutely freezing. And you saw deer? We saw deer, we saw stags. And that's uh, good, is it? That was brilliant. Did you yeah. read any books? Uh, I didn't. I didn't. You didn't read any books I didn't at read all? any books. In a whole week? I didn't read any books, no. I, um, I, <laughs> the closest I got to, to stalking is, I read on holiday, I reread four novels by John Bookin. Did you? Yeah, the, uh, the he did. There's the Richard Hannay series, which is really, really good. Thirty Nine Steps is the first one, but I read all the the other ones, and quite often he ends up sending his characters wandering around the heather in Scotland. It's beautifully, beautifully done. Mm. So, so there, there was a moment of connection. With and what there's you there's dangers in the countryside in his. There are, there are. It's, it's it's really nice. Stags. They they go stalking for stags at one oh. point, and then they they shoot them. I mean, it's, it's in that very, it's in that very nineteen sort of fifties way of we see something beautiful, so we killed yeah, it. Let's kill it. Yeah, but you didn't do it. I didn't do that. You no, were just no, enjoying enjoying yourself. Yes. Well, it's lovely to have you back. And for me to, are you going away again? No, not till Christmas. Oh, I'm going away again. Are you? Yeah, in September. Where to? Ibiza. <laughs> Which at the minute is <laughs> from under, Milton Keynes. From, to yeah, I went to Milton Keynes this week, and next week, next, it's a couple of weeks time. But apparently, there's a killer heat wave in. Europe. Have you yeah, heard yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have family in Italy? Is it, is yeah, it, yeah. Is it particularly bad or is it? Well, actually, uh, I'm from the Lake District and it's been finally raining. My, my mum and dad have been craving storms and they. The Lake District of Italy? got them, yes. Oh, the Lake good. District of Italy. I was going to say that just completely. Otherwise, my whole view of <laughs> no, you sorry, as an Lake exotic European is, is just completely shattered. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's, it's it happens every year. It gets hot and people die. Yeah. Old people die. Especially. Oh. Well, thanks for that. <laughs> Welcome back. If you want to subscribe to the TLS, do Google TLS subscriptions, type pod one in the offer code section and you can get six issues for £6. Coming up on the show this week, it's 70 years since partition, that hasty and ill-considered breakup of the British Indian Empire leading to the independence of India and Pakistan and then a few years later of Bangladesh. We've devoted several pages to it in the TLS this week, kicked off by an examination, a critical examination of modern India by the novelist Neil Mukherjee. He shall be joining us. And Francis Wilson has reviewed a number of books that look to describe a sisterhood of female writers from Austin to Wolfe, Bronte to Elliot. It's a lot of canonical literature to join up and she'll be here to help us to do it. This seemed like a good week to consider modern India because it is now reaching its 70th birthday. 
70 years since, in one reading, the British completed a legacy of abuse and racism and harm, and then cut and ran. What sort of country has grown up since? Is it the often cited example of a miracle economy expanding excitingly invisible reproof to the endless struggles of old world Europe? Or is it a nation that continues to immure people in poverty, discriminate against women and be riven by religious rivalry and intolerance? Neil Mukherjee, the novelist whose very fine novel A State of Freedom was extracted earlier this year in the TLS, has written a piece on the subject reviewing a book called Superfast Primetime Ultimate Nation by Adam Roberts and a novel called Gacha Gotcha by Vivek Shanbag, translated by Srinath Perur. In his article, Neil cites some eloquent statistics about India. It spends just $75 per person on health, compared to more than $900 in Brazil, for example. 30% of Indian children are underweight, 130 million households lack toilets, and women's labour accounts for just 17% of the formal economy. India is locked into an almost Victorian system, it would seem. Wealth and assets concentrated at the top, with not much trickling down to the bottom. Gacha Gacha tells the story of one shabby genteel family in Bangalore and in Neil's terms, in just over a hundred pages, distills the human soul's infinitely complicated relationship with money. It thus stands as a fitting piece of evidence in any consideration of the state of the Indian nation. Neil Mukherjee joins Thea and me now. Uh, Neil, before we get on to um, your thoughts on modern India, what's your response to the anniversary of partition, what sort of feelings does it evoke in you? Well, why are we celebrating the 70th? Because it's not really a round number. Why not the 75th? (laughs) That that was worrying me a bit. Also, partition, it's a difficult question for someone of my generation to answer because my generation was not directly affected by the partition at all. We have stories of families that have been passed on generations. Also, the northwest of the country, the, the line between India and what is Pakistan now, that area saw much more action, if you will. And there the stories have remained alive in the sense of families being riven and people have passed the stories down generations. Where I grew up in the east part of the country in Calcutta, there was, of course, another line that went very close to it. And people don't seem to pay much attention to that because when India and Pakistan were partitioned in 1947, Pakistan was actually two discrete nations geographically separated by the northern landmass of India because Pakistan and East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh, uh, after the Bangladesh War of Independence in 1971, in which India supported Bangladesh over Pakistan. That was when the nation state of Bangladesh was created, which is right next door to West Bengal, the, the Indian state I grew up in. Now, Bengal had seen an earlier uh, division by the British in 1906 by Lord Curzon, and um, the ostensible reason for that division was administrative efficiency, because the Bengal province was apparently too large for the British to administer as a, as, as, as a unity. The line that went through West Bengal and East Bengal, as it was called then, divided the Muslim-heavy Eastern population from the Hindu-heavy Western population. Anyway, it created such a ruckus and such a huge political protest formed around it, notably the Swadeshi movement, which is the first nationalist uh, movement, and, and, and I don't use the word nationalist in a pejorative way. Uh, it gave rise to such political protest that after five years, Bengal was reunified in 1911. Mm. Uh, I didn't know that. But the damage was done, actually. But what what happened was it brought together a sense of the unity of Bengalis in some ways. Yeah. And that sort of passed down the generations. So the Bengalis have never really considered themselves divided into Indians and Bangladeshis in the way the people of the Punjab say have seen themselves divided into Pakistanis and Indians. And and how much, when you're growing up, are there clear feelings persisting against the the idea of the British Empire? We've got a review in the paper this week of a book called Inglorious Empire, in which the author Shashi Tharoor calls for a symbolic reparation payment from Britain to India in absolution for the sins of the past. 
Are you sympathetic to that notion? Do you think that's an important thing? Is there, is there a wrong that needs to be publicly righted or is everything so future-looking in, in the modern India that, that, that that's actually wouldn't really be, be very much considered by anybody? You know, the British actually did pay a financial reparation to India after 1947. It tried to back out of it, but... Uh, I, I actually forget who it was. Perhaps it was Sir Vallabhai Patel who, like, read the riot act to other athletes or churches government to say that, you know, you'd be doing a great moral damage if you do not pay the money. And the money was paid. But I think what Shashi Tharoor says is correct, but not in its details. I feel a better thing to do would be to have the history of empire and colonialism taught in British schools and British history. Yeah, he says that as well, actually, in the book. I was never taught it at all in British no, no, in, in this, school. This, this is what I... I mean, I mean, you know, when I went to university, I mean, I mean even my tutors, who are not really unintelligent or uninformed people, no. in fact, exactly the opposite, in fact, they would say things like, um, oh, yeah, but we built the railways. You know, in a way, say Germany has had a very tough and rigorous and continues to have a rigorous reckoning with its terrible history. I don't think Britain or Belgium or Italy or France, these countries have never had that kind of reckoning with its past. No, and, quite, uh, and quite the opposite, as you say, you end, there's, there's quite an industry of, of historians, you know, Neil Ferguson spring yeah. immediately to mind, yeah. who yeah. Make, it, make it as part of their job to say, look how wonderful that was. Yeah, and, 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 and that has been done. And I think there's a sort of collective denialism about empire and the costs of empire. And I feel the, the one level on which Britain has had some kind of perhaps forcible reckoning with uh, empire is with Ireland, actually, because Ireland is on its doorstep. And you can see the Irish problem now as going back to England's perhaps first colonial venture that blew up on its face very badly and it's been, it's been, and it's been picking up the pieces since. But what, but what happened with, say, Eastern Africa or, or India and stuff, the disengagement was done very quickly and the costs were left for the colonized, the ex-colonies to pick up. So, and, and, and because it was happening far away, uh, it was easy to turn uh, one's face away from what, what was going on. I feel one good thing that could happen is, as I say, you know, Germany is a model of what, what has happened, uh, uh, what, can one, what one can do with one's history. And Re- reparation of a, what does he say, a pound um, we a are, pound a year? A, yeah, well, I mean, can that's... I- can yeah, I ask, were you were you schooled in? Did you spend your school years in in India? I did. I, and I did. how is it taught in Indian schools? Of course, it's taught in Indian schools. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, we were taught it under the like, you know, the, it was called the freedom struggle, the great freedom struggle, mm-hmm. and you know. But then, you know, uh, it, we we were not so oddly enough. This is a total digression. We were not taught anything about the Holocaust, say, for example. Really? Uh, no, no, we weren't. So, so I only uh, uh, learned about the Holocaust at the age of what 15 or 14 or something because i read a novel by leon uris called mila 18 i thought wait hang on this this if if this is not fiction if this is true then we haven't been taught some of the the most important events in 20th century history and then of course i read the diary of anne frank and that that Mm -hmm. opened up but but it's it's not taught in indian school and but and and you know mein kampf has remained a bestseller in India. In every single provincial train station you get off, the bookstore will have a copy of mine. No, and how, how, really? do we ex- how do we explain that? I don't know how to explain <laughs> that. I, mean, I, 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 have, I, I feel I lack explanation for everything in life. And, <laughs> and, and, and that is, it, yeah. It is interesting, though, because in terms of the partition Holocaust parallel, it's one that's that's often cited and in, indeed cited in the pages of the TLS this this week. And, and I can't help but note that obviously in, in India, in terms of monuments to the suffering mm. that followed partition, I think there's only one and nothing in nothing in Delhi. Really, I didn't know that either. Actually, that 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 there is that uh, for that there is only one monument for partition yeah. in in India. So, so there is also, of course, the the uh, slight conflict between whether you call it independence or partition. In yeah. India, we are we we celebrate Independence Day, 
but I also came to the idea about the miseries and the costs of partition, the human costs of partition, much, much later in life. That, too, is not, like, it's skated over, if memory serves me correctly. It's skated over quickly in schools. You know, you, when, you, when you see some a film, and I, in my opinion, it's a rubbish film, Gandhi by Richard Attenborough. Yeah. The partition scenes are spectacular in the tourist sense of the term. But, you know, once again, I came to the stories of partition and, you know, we knew about, you know, riven families. I mean, that was quite normal. So where I was growing up in West Bengal, in, in Calcutta, we always used to, like, Bengali separated uh, or Hindus who had migrated to India, either during the earlier division of Bengal or in 1947, they used to refer to their home country. The the literal words used would be that country. You know, my father's family originally hailed from what is now Bangladesh, and this is a very very common thing amongst Bengalis in India, that part of their family would come from, or, or had earlier come from what is now Bangladesh, but what well, well, Bangladesh then. Let's, let's talk about modern India, because it's the, it's the subject of, of, of your piece, and um, what's, what's fascinating to me about the piece, we'll get onto the fiction, because I think that's, that's really interesting, but you're more pessimistic than the journalist Adam Roberts, who wrote this book about India. You seem much more pessimistic than he is. Is that fair, do you think? I, I am, actually. I mean, I, you know, I picked up on, on what he was saying. I mean, I do feel he pulls his punches. He presents such damning data that his optimism slowly fades throughout the book. I could tell that he was trying, he was willing India to do well. He really, he, he likes the country. He wants it to do well. He wants it to fulfill its tremendous potential that such a huge number of people under the age of 25 could mean. And and then suddenly all the data was just damning, and he and even he couldn't bring himself to say there is some improvement happening. And and all chapters would sort of end on this. Uh, there would be ten pages of damning evidence, and there would be this one small paragraph or two sentences at the end saying, "Oh, India needs to do better here. Oh, uh, 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 right steps have been taken in, in this direction." I mean, India has been taking right steps for the last seventy years, but not much has come of it. Yeah, and what, what optimism he does have is is founded almost exclusively on a kind of a trickle down model. Also, or I, I think he 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 is very optimistic about Modi, or he starts out being very optimistic about Modi, but that's, uh, I mean, quite apart from the problematics of, of, of placing optimism on a Hindu nationalist authoritarian figure in a pluralistic country like India, I feel that even that, like, that, that's kind of slightly misguided in the sense that one person cannot clean up that stable, I think, you know. Uh, um, and what do you make of Modi, Neil? What do you think of him as a figure? <laughs> I, I am not a fan, as you can tell. I mean, you know, he, I feel he has blood on his hands from the 2002 Gujarat massacre. I feel all the things that are enabled in India at the moment, the, this kind of, you know, uh, uh, high nationalism that's running high, the vigilantism that we are seeing, this is all enabled by his government, I think, and by him. If he does prove to be the economic reformer, that Roberts thinks he came to power for, or he was voted to power for, it would be, I think, perhaps too high a price to pay. But I don't think the economic reforms are happening. I mean, you know, since Roberts wrote that book, there's been this long piece in The Economist about how the GST, the goods and services tax, the one, like one of his reformist uh, bills, how it could have actually made things easier in India slightly. Uh, that's been flubbed. The demonetization thing was unnecessary and caused endless misery for the common man. It was just appalling. You know, on, on, that, on that demonetization thing, people who have black money in India, they do not keep it in cash. It's kept in property or Swiss bank accounts or jewelry or it's stashed away abroad somewhere. To sort of tinker with the margin, saying, oh, we are going to take 500 rupee notes out of circulation, it's not even a minor dent 
on things. And it kind of misses the, I mean, in many ways, the problem of the age in all countries, including Britain, is, yeah. that is not income inequality, it's asset inequality. It's, it, it, it's how, it's how yeah. uh, advantages and money gets fixed yeah. into assets, which you can, then the state and, yeah. and people generally yeah. get no access yeah. to. And I feel all this talk of New India that, you know, oh, the number of billionaires are, are increasing, that does not actually mean the country is doing well on the ground. I mean, you know, Roberts admits that. He says, you know, all these upbeat figures, people like uh, uh, beating the drum and saying, oh, we are growing at, you know, double-digit figures. But the evidence on the ground is very thin and feeble. You know, this is, I mean, one's abiding experience of India, even one, when one goes as a tourist, is you see great wealth on one hand, and you see extreme crushing poverty on the other hand. And you keep asking yourself, this, if this country is doing so well, then why are the visible markers of such crushing poverty not gone? It tallies with um, Narendra Modi's, how proud he is to the, the caste system, I suppose. Yes, and if you asked me if there's one thing perhaps India could do to make great strides forward is to actually enforce the dismantling of the caste system. But of course, I mean, you know, the caste system is actually unconstitutional in India. I mean, I mean, India has an incredibly progressive uh, uh, constitution. I mean, it's a wonderful piece of work, actually, I think. And its architect, um, Dr. B. R. Ambedkar, who actually came from one of the lower castes, he was an untouchable. I mean, you could see him alongside Gandhi as the founding father of modern India in some ways. He was an extraordinarily progressive mind. That constitution is really both literature and one of the most progressive thinking, uh, 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 one of the most progressive documents uh, ever, I think. But I feel these things, you know, in, in, it's, it's a tricky country in the sense that on the books things are one thing and in reality things are quite another. Um- before we go, we must talk about this novel, um, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, Gacha Gacha. You, yeah. you seem very taken by it. Oh, it's it. wonderful. T- t- it's tell us about tell about it and the author, uh, Vivek Schoenberg, as well. I guess he first came on my radar because um, uh, Grant Magazine did an issue on India, and it was guest edited by Ian Jack, who used to be editor of Grant, uh, and he was brought back to edit the, this piece. And one of the uh, pieces it had was an excerpt from this novel. And I read the piece and I thought, this is interesting. And then several months later, the book's US publisher sent me a copy of the books and with a letter saying, will you blurb it? And I thought, you know, this is 100 pages and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. And I have, I'm already well disposed towards it because I read an excerpt in Granta. And I read the book in one sitting and I thought, my God, this is absolutely astonishing. I mean, the precision of its observations. I mean, the sheer truthfulness. Everything about the book rings true. Everything. And, and he does it so economically. He does it so quickly without sacrificing on all the depths and the details. And um, so I gave it a blurb. And then uh, um, several months later, Toby asked me to review it for you. And I thought, yes, I'd do it. But at least I should mention that I do not know who the writer is. And <laughs> no. I have no, no. So, so I did mention that in the piece. So I have no idea who he is. He's apparently a very successful Kannada writer from the state of Karnataka. And uh, uh, this is his first novel to be translated into English. And the translation has been done beautifully by Srinath Perur. And the style, what's the, is it sort of a very realistic novel? Is that, it's, that... It's, it's a very realist novel. It's a very realist novel, but it also owes something to, I feel, the short story form, because a lot of it is unsaid. And, and everything that happens in the book happens by way of implication, and you, the reader, have to put things together in your head slightly. And when you do that, I mean, he will not do... I mean, I, I, I get the impression that he wrote perhaps 200 pages and then took, a, took 100 pages out. Yeah. He went on slimming it till... I mean, I mean, the book seems like a blade of light to me. You know, I, I am very taken with this book. It's, it's, uh, it, I, I, I read an essay by uh, someone I consider to be one of the most intelligent critics of our time. Her name is Parul Segal, and she wrote a beautiful piece on it in the New York Times. And uh, she calls it uh, a great Indian novel. And I think, yes, it is. It is a great Indian novel. I feel that he may be translating his own work into English in the future. 
and I can't wait. So there's names to look out. Uh, Neil Mukherjee, thank you so much. And it's a great recommendation because I'd never heard of this novel until I read your piece. And um, I hope that lots of people read the piece and, and go on and, and check out this novel. You can read it in one sitting. Lovely. Thank you, Neil Mukherjee. <laughs> thank thank you. you so much. I think, I mean, if anything, I absolutely want to read the novel, but I'm also grateful of the chance to import a new nonsense word, the title meaning hopeless is that uh, what it unsolvable was? tangle. Is it, of course, yeah, he says that in the, in the piece, isn't it? I, I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, but you're, you're no use in Indian words. I'm not. You're I'm as bad as I am. No. <laughs> Hopeless, in um, fact. Neil is not optimistic about India, and we didn't have much time to go into all of the details, but you know, it does seem to be a country which has the potential to be so so wealthy, and yet you know, we couldn't really get into sectarianism, which is still a massive problem. Gender equality in India is, a, is appalling. You know, the statistic that, that women contribute 17% of uh, the formal economy, but it doesn't feel like a, a country necessarily that's that's coming on leaps and bounds. No, I suppose in, in, Neil's mind. in a sense, yeah, we refer back to this idea of a hopeless, unsolvable tangle. In um, Neil's books, his first novel was called Past Continuous. It was translated as something else, I think, A Life, A Life Apart, when it came over to the UK. But that title itself gives you that sense of this ongoing ongoingness in his most recent novel, which, as you mentioned, we excerpted, ends without a full stop it's it's final sentence is sort of cut off in mm. media res so that i suppose is another example of fiction getting to the point getting and we have close her, to we have her sawney actually in in the paper as well talking about partition fiction mm. and again his point is that you can read any number of histories which point to the political landscape but then in some ways fiction is a better place to explore Mm. what it was like. I was interesting that it's not made a big deal of in Neil's education either. The, Indeed, yeah. The, neither the Holocaust, which itself was interesting, because it's been a long time I'm, I'm sort of yeah. pursuing that, but the trauma of it. Because, you know, we have a, in the in the paper, we have this review of partition, a book about partition. 15 million people were displaced and maybe a million people were killed. Yeah. That's an incredible number, yeah. of, number of people harmed. And yet, as we say, no, no national monument or one national monument nothing in Delhi and I think only last year I read somewhere that only last year was a partition museum yeah, and built it's, and it's only just opened I and think. it's only just opened As I think I read so that as well. yeah I mean it, I suppose there's so much more reckoning to come but if if we're and should we we're not even guilty? sure whether we call call it partition or independence yeah. or and should know. we feel collective guilt do you think do you think we should be more burdened by our, our probably I mean I'm sure, but I mean, burden and, and a sense of responsibility is only useful if you do something with it. And I'm not sure monetary reparation is, is the answer or symbolic, uh, symbolic or, you know, of one pound or, or something more. I'm not really sure. But either. education is, is obviously, the, the, as Neil said, education is the only thing in, that it's worth the, pursuing. And indeed, Shashi Tharoor says in the same book, and he, he yeah. didn't talk about it, he says that it should also be taught critically in the schools. And yeah. this wasn't, you know, the first I learned of it was Midnight's Children. Yeah. When I read Midnight's Children, it talks about partition. I was like, what, what's this? Yeah. It's interesting, actually, because when I was reading Neil's piece and the other pieces in the paper, I started, I couldn't help but start thinking about, um, you know, The Act of Killing, the documentary by Joshua Oppenheimer yeah. from 2012, and then he did the follow-up. Um, the Look of Silence a few years afterwards. And and those two films deal with the legacy of, of, of massacre in Indonesia. And I couldn't help but think that there must be something like that. There must be something like that coming if it hasn't already come and we just don't know about it. Where, Brit where, Br where Britain confronts it. Well, where Britain confronts it, but also where India confronts it itself because yeah. ethnic cleansing and, you know, it, it was... It was an equivalent to and is spoken in the same breath sometimes as the European Holocaust. Yeah. Um, so there's, I mean, all I'm saying is there's so much more to to come to do. So you know, I welcome this idea of a 70th anniversary, even though, as as Neil pointed out, it's a bit of a weird one in a sense, a um, bit of a weird number. But then that's what newspapers <laughs> can yeah. rely on. Indeed, I mean, and it's an excuse. But I mean, I think the education points we should leave it. But the education points are good one. Like, why? Why are we not taught about empire? And, mm. you know, I've learned, I, oh, I didn't do it at all. Educated in Europe, I don't think we. I mean, we probably mentioned it in, as an afterthought to a broader lesson on colonialism. Yeah, but I'm not sure I even learned about colonialism. I think we did the First World War, and mm. therefore you get a lot of the unpicking of some of the great empires, and it's kind of alluded to mm. there. English history, kind of, you do. Uh, you never really do the nineteenth century. I certainly didn't in, at school at all. 
90s. Which is crazy when you think about what happened in the 19th yeah. century. But I, I remember even the Indian, you know, I learned about the Indian mutiny by reading Flashman novels. Yeah. You know, that was never taught. You know, I'd never heard of Cornpore until I'd read those books. There's obviously a big gap there, isn't yeah. there? But then again, people objected and the Daily Mail would say, stop pandering to horrible liberal views and, yeah. and teaching how awful Britain is. Yeah. You should be talking about, you know, Michael Gove's Britishness. Celebrate Britishness. <laughs> yeah, celebrate the trains, exactly. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Every student of English literature will probably recall spending the first year at least of undergraduate study dissecting books' characters and themes along the lines of classic oppositions, antagonisms between private and public, passive and active, individual and society, cyclical and linear, the domestic and, well, everything that occurs outside of the windows. These categories in turn could be drawn into the master opposition of male versus female, with no prizes for guessing which tended to go with which. This week, <laughs> this week, podcast regular Francis Wilson considers a clutch of books that complicate simplistic diagrams, looking at women writers in public life from Jane Austen to Virginia Woolf and beyond. There's much talk here of hidden sisters, secret sisterhoods and subtle subversions of the status quo. The joint aim is to bring the little separate lives Woolf accorded to her predecessors and their protagonists into the larger common life. The project seems connected, at least in part, to a well-known collection of poems, The World's Wife, by our current poet laureate, Carol Ann Duffy, in which the supposedly private women's perspective is made public. Here's Mrs Icarus. I'm not the first or the last to stand on a hillock watching the man she married prove to the world he's a total, utter, absolute grade A pillock. Thankfully, <laughs> uh, thankfully, Francis Wilson joins us on the phone now to put a much finer point on the matter. To say the very least. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Francis, perhaps, perhaps you could begin by introducing us to this concept of the hidden sister. Where, you know, where does it come from? Who's it being applied to? And crucially, how helpful is it? I think we can trace it back to um, back to Virginia Woolf's idea of Shakespeare's sister in a room of one's own, when she said that. Um, Shakespeare had a sister called Judith. She was a poet, but she died before she'd been able to write a word, and she's buried beneath the elephant and castle. But she says, Wolf Wolf says, she's she's alive in you and in me. And if we live another century or so, she will find expression, Shakespeare's sister will find expression through through women's writers. So I think there's this very strong sense of kind of sisterhood born, um, born from Virginia Woolf. And it's picked up again in these in these four books that I've looked at. 
And what we end up with is, I mean, there's there's much talk of the sisterhood of, of ideas. So, I mean, what are the common influences that are being shared between these sisters in inverted commas? Okay, well, they... They're... The books are approaching the subject from very, from very different levels. I think the most complicated, the most abstract, most philosophical is Pam Norris in Jane Austen, Virginia Woolf, and Worldly Realism. And what, um, what Morris is arguing is that Jane Austen and Virginia Woolf have this sisterhood, share this sisterhood of ideas. We think of them as being writers approaching the world from completely opposite angles. That here's sort of Jane Austen right at the, you know, the birth of realism and Virginia Woolf at the death of realism. But actually both of them were... Um, writing in very similar climates of thought, both writing out of, um, writing out of wars... Jane Austen writing out of the, um, the war with France, Virginia Woolf obviously writing out of um, um, uh, the First World War. There's a war of ideas going on between um, I, the idealists and the materialists. And what Pam Morris suggests is that Virginia Woolf is much more of a materialist than we give her credit for. We think of her as being, you know, the kind of the, um, the, uh, the writer of interiority, you know, this, her gift, her, her nephew, Quentin Bell, said of her, her gift was the pursuit of shadows, the ghostly whispers of the mind, and Pythian incomprehensibility. <laughs> and what Pam Morris says is, yeah, to a certain extent, but she also writes about knitting long brown socks. <laughs> she also writes about motor cars. She also writes about soup. There's a lot of food, a lot of clothes and shoes going on there. So let's focus on, um, let's focus on the thinginess if you like, of Virginia Woolf. And she brings her roaringly back into, um, into bodily form. That's so interesting you say that, friends, because I, I was talking to someone who is connected to the paper, and she said Virginia Woolf is, is one of these people that we talk about all the time. And we read books about Virginia Woolf, and we use Virginia Woolf often because she wrote so brilliantly critically about uh, other literature. We use her as a prism through which we look at, at other books and other writers. Yeah. But ultimately... Nobody reads Virginia Woolf anymore yeah. in the way that they read Jane Austen. I think it's a really interesting comparison between the That's two, where, whereas yeah. just Virginia Woolf is, seen, is so important and, it, and is this massive literary figure, almost in every respect other than people reading lots of her books. Well, I think that's true of the novels. I think people, um, people still read Mrs. Dalloway because it's an A-level set text. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd say Jacob's Room and the Waves. I, I can't think of anyone who's picked them up for pleasure. Yeah, I for, think... for a heck of a long time. Her best work, and here's a plug for the TLS, was for the TLS. Absolutely. I mean, her reviews and her <laughs> essays exact... are peerless. They, that's exactly right, I agree. And it's quite extraordinary when you consider that she this was egoless writing as well, and she always, because it was, it was anonymous mm. back then, but Virginia Woolf said that the finest prose is egoless. You can't find an ego in... Um, in, our, in our best writing. But it, it, it is interesting that she... Her reputation has, I think, become stronger and stronger and stronger when, as you say, she's becoming less and less read. Whereas Austen is arguably retaining that same um, strength of reputation by being constantly read. I mean, we, we've just had the 200th anniversary yeah. of her death and, and she seems to loom larger. Her, her books are endlessly being adapted. I see that ITV are going to do another Pride and Prejudice. Oh, they're doing a dark one, apparently. A dark, they? Yeah, yeah. The, the, which depresses but me. But she's but, constantly misread. I mean, she's just yeah. misread and then misread even more and then misread even more and turned into, I think, a very serious writer has turned into an absolute fool. It's interesting you say that because you, you think she's become sort of chocolate boxy and uh, and just Mr. Darcy emerging wet out of a lake, um, and no more than that. I think it's. I think well. I mean, I, I mocked that uh, you know a darker, um, a dark version of Pride and Prejudice is going to be made. I don't. I don't actually think that's a bad idea. I think Jane Austen is actually much, much darker than we give her credit for. And it's the chick. It's the chicklet side. I mean, all of these books are attacking the chicklet representation, repackaging of Jane Austen now, all of them saying, you know, there's um, the authentic voice has just disappeared behind our desire to, um, to you know, to go to a ball. And is that because she's a woman? I mean, that's an interesting point. Would that, does that happen with any other writer? Would that happen with a male writer where their 
endlessly repackaged so their essence is is lost it doesn't feel that it, 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 in some ways which is what you're talking about here how female writers connect is jane austen misrepresented as another example of how how a woman's voice is is misinterpreted or silenced i think it has to be doesn't it i'm just thinking of the only male writer i can think of who has anything like the kind of media um, representation as Austin is is Dickens mm. and he's never trivialized well in a sense that's what that's what sort of intrigues me about or worries me even about these books is that they all seem to remain trapped in this sort of quite sweet domestic or familiar roles I mean if it's not secret sisters or encouraging yeah. friends it's it's aunts either sharp-eyed or meek and mild yes ones. I hope we get on to the aunts <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that, that, no, that's absolutely right. All of these books are attacking the, um, the, the points that Virginia Woolf made at the beginning of um, A Room of One's Own, where she says we have to take, when she's talking about Shakespeare's sister and hidden women writers and women writers who don't even know that they're writers and they've written anything, but when she says um, if, we give, if we give a woman a room of her own and a certain, and a certain income, she will get writing, all of these, uh, all of these four books say... That's not true. Women have always belonged in, in the real world, in the commonality, in the sitting room. You know, this, this idea of Virginia Woolf needed to isolate the woman writer to make out she'd always been isolated and alone because she was trying to make a point. You know, she was trying to introduce herself to the world, if you like. But they all say that these women writers have always belonged to sisterhoods, have always been part of the commonality of, ex- of ideas in exchange. I suppose what I mean, though, even further than that, is why why do we have to why do we still have to talk about the sisterhood? Why oh, can I mean? No, I agree. Why can we not just say these were writers who were in the world? No, I com- I completely <laughs> agree with you there. I know I'm very um, I was very surprised to find a conversation about sisterhood starting again when all these books arrived in the post form because I thought you know I wasn't. I was an undergraduate in the 1980s during the exactly. second wave of British feminism, and I thought we'd done with sisterhood then and agreed that it wasn't... None of us actually knew what it meant. None of us were sisters anyway. And so I was quite surprised to find the idea of sisterhood coming up once more. And to be honest, I'm not quite sure what I, um, what I make of it and whether I'm um, convinced that there's any sisterhood... Whether I'm convinced by the idea of sisterhood or much interested in it mm. or whether it just feels I'm limiting writers at the moment you know is Rachel Cusk interested in sisterhood and would, you, and would you I mean would you I mean what I also find striking when you look at the connections that are being drawn which I'm sure are legitimate because these are all at one level these are all big literary voices who obviously will have interconnected because they're all they're all significant voices but no one is going to write a book called The Brotherhood which connects Walter Scott Dickens <laughs> and E.M. Forster I mean they're just not are they? they're not going to pick four lapidary names of the male yeah. authorship and say, oh, look how these four chaps are all connected over centuries by their brotherhoodness. No, that's, that's absolutely true. So why do we need to feel that women are always supporting each other? And that's behind, yeah. that's the kind of, that's the thesis behind all of the, well, not behind all of these books, but certainly behind A Secret Sisterhood. The, um, um, the series that, you know, women are kind of locked in arms. Yeah. You know, women writers are supporting each other. That's not, why, would that, why do we need to have that well, it implies weakness, doesn't it? It implies exactly. the, it, it, it implies the sort of twee weakness, which is the which is the worst of it all. That yes. uh, look at these plucky writers clinging together, uh, and they have to cling together because they can't stand alone. Yeah, is the implication you draw for? I mean, I've obviously not read the books. I read 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 your review. I mean, yes. I suppose someone might argue, well. In more patriarchal times, even than now, they were repressed in some form or another. So they were, and that's just reality rather than um, saying how it should be. But it does seem reductive, doesn't it? That I want to consider Jane Austen as Jane Austen. I don't necessarily want to consider Jane Austen alongside Bronte. Elliot yeah. and Wolf, because I know, I, and, and 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 nor did Bronte. Bronte thought that Jane Austen was she couldn't work her out. She couldn't yeah. understand what it was all about. She was baffled by Jane Austen's project. There was no sisterhood of ideas mm. there at all. Mm. Far more interesting, I suppose, is it would be an analysis, and I'm sure that that one exists, in fact, of of the friendship, the complicated friendship or relationship between Virginia Woolf and, and Catherine Mansfield, rather than celebrating them as sisters. 
Yes. Now, what, yes, and what happens here in, um, in the book, as a secret sisterhood, n- none of the sisterhoods here are sisterhoods or secrets, by the way, but that <laughs> one, of the, one of the relationships looked at is between Virginia Woolf and Catherine Mansfield, and the authors agree, you know, that, of course, this wasn't a sisterhood or secret, but, you know, what they're, tr- what they're trying to do is say, you know, this is famously antagonistic relationship, but actually, you know, beneath the antagonism, there was... Um, you know, there was support and there was friendship. And I think, you know, to a certain, I mean, it's not a new reading to a certain extent. That's true. You know, I think Catherine Mansfield kick-started Virginia Woolf's proper project by being the only person kind of good enough to seriously um, criticise her, criticise her writing. But, oh, well, we, can, we, can we talk about names? Yeah. Oh, do, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> part of this sister, secret sisterhood business seems to be a kind of being on first-name terms with your women writers yeah. in a way that you never would be with. I you know, totally agree with this. Leo Tolstoy or Charles Dickens. And I just don't get it. And when I was putting this review together, I phoned a lot of my female friends and said, what do you think about calling Virginia Woolf Virginia? Oh, it's Emily Dickens. Don't Dickin- you ever think of Virginia Woolf as Virginia? Do you have any strong thoughts about it? And, and these were all, my, you know, my so-called sisters from the 80s. They were all bewildered and baffled. No one could work out what it was about. So I'm a bit stuck here. Because it's also true. I mean, it's, it's so interesting to me that I, I think of two female writers I studied and Jane, you, you do get serious academic works that call Jane Austen Jane. Yeah. And you get Emily Dickinson. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly the same. They call her. Is Emily. she Emily? Emily Dickinson. Yeah, she she is Emily in some. I mean, not not in not in every academic work, obviously, but in some she is. And it again, it just seems proprietorship. Do you think it is, or is it just, is it just slightly demeaning? Like, yeah, like, like... no, it absolutely is demeaning. It just shows a lack of respect. <laughs> what it, seem, it seems to the effect it has. I think when you are reading a book, a critical book. In, in which the you know George Eliot is called Marianne and Jane Austen is called Jane and Margaret Atwood is called Margaret. It means you you're not talking seriously mm. about these women. There's too much intimacy. It's right. pillow mm. talk, and it, so it, the discourse is wrong. You, you know you can't say anything penetrating or insightful when you're um, when you're. <laughs> When you're sort of having a cup of tea with them on the show. There's another point I want to raise here, Francis, because we've talked about this, I think, before. But again, it seems to me that we're ever moving further and further away from the words that they wrote themselves. So we're not getting we didn't send you four really fascinating books about the prose of a variety of significant literary figures. We sent you books which are about animating parts of their life to say, look how real they are, look how friendly they are, look how uh, they left the drawing room and did X, Y and Z. Whereas that seems to me to be, and I don't even think this is a feminist point, I think this is a general spirit of the age point, that we get biographies and pseudo-biographies rather than critical engagement. And that feels like where we've shifted to when we consider great authors. Yes. Are you talking about the absence of close reading, the absence yeah. of words on the page? Yeah, and actually yeah. just the, even the absence of whole books focusing mm-hmm. on yeah. that. rather because of an emphasis on relatability above anything else. Yeah, biography yeah. is the great growth area, right, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's breaking down the fear. I mean, these these writers are terrifying figures. And who's afraid of Virginia? Well, <laughs> <laughs> Virginia, yeah. <laughs> but no, I've, um, I felt this very strongly in, um, in a couple of these books. There weren't words on the page. For me to, um, to for me to look at, you know. So when there's an argument that you know that Catherine Mansfield powerfully read Virginia Woolf, I want to see an example of that powerful reading. What were the words she read, and how did she read them, and how did she respond? So I want far more quotation. I want to feel the um, I want to feel the violence of their thought rather than have this sort of sepia first name version of it kind of translated to me. Yeah, I, I, I think it just seems to me to be the more I look at the books that come into the paper, the more you, you, you just see um, it's it's biography and, and memoir. And then now literature has become biography. I mean, it's not just, yeah. you know, we get, we're filled with memoirs of women swimming, which I've now seemed to have read sort of four, four books about women swimming. <laughs> 
it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a new. It's Women incredible. Women can swim. Oh, no, Who knew? Yeah, exactly. I, I'm very pleased about that. I wouldn't Despite wish to. All the hand holding, oh, no, we still managed to be able to swim. I, I wouldn't wish to stop them so either swimming or writing Women about it. Sisterhood. Yeah, yeah. The sisterhood of swimmers. There must be a book that about. That's a bestseller. Surely. Yeah, the sisterhood of swimmers. How Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte were, were first class front crawlers. Francis, maybe you and I could write it together. <laughs> you can't be trusted alone, can you? Uh, so have you come out of this just finally, um, Francis? Is it depressing or, I mean, we're being a bit harsher, I suspect. On, I'm sure there's some good parts of, of, of these books. What, what, just end on a positive note. Is there something that you've learned about some of these authors or a new perspective you can, you can take away from this? Yeah, I thought that I thought they were all of them best on Virginia Woolf. Actually, I thought really? the whole sense of kind of bring, bringing Virginia Woolf um, out from that the sense of her as this kind of wedge shaped wedge shaped piece of darkness that she's been represented as into the into the light. I thought I thought I thought these books did um, did well by Woolf. I can see a different Woolf now. Not so um, Jane Austen. No, I'm seeing Jane Austen less and less and less clearly. Virginia Woolf becomes more worldly. So yes to Virginia, no to Jane. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Francis, Francis Wilson, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Um, I'm so glad she said that because uh, I remember being an undergraduate and reading Emily Dickinson poems and then you'd read some some criticism and they'd be talking about Emily and you'd just think, that's so strange. It, mm. is, it is such a, it is a, it, it's a sort of almost using a nickname and it's a sort of diminishing mm. uh, attempt on it. And I don't know, I mean, I think it is particularly for why can't Jane Austen, Virginia Woolf at all just be looked at individually? I, I'm not convinced. Are you convinced by this sort of notion of sister? I'm sure. No, no, I'm exactly, I'm, I'm not. I think it, it, it feels like an attempt to remain within a gendered dialogue and, and, and you know, presume that they, they operated as a, as a collective rather than and as they individuals. And they did to a certain extent, I'm sure. Of course, that, but no more than, than men would have done. Well, I'm sure Virginia Woolf, for example, read an awful lot of male authors, what exactly. with them being the dominant. Well, she reviewed them all for the TLS yeah, as well. And, and she would be as influenced, you would thought, theoretically, by Henry James as, as, by, yeah. uh, as by George Eliot. There's well, no, re- no real reason why... Other well, and, and indeed, and, and more so because when we talk about, you know, in inverted commas, the sisterhood of ideas, mostly that was, those are ideas that were drawn, I think, from the Scottish Enlightenment, which was, what, 99.9% male. Yeah. Male ideas are a few, I think, three women I can think of, but that's about it. So, yeah, I mean, why would you limit the influence, yeah. the influence or, or the, the interests? Or, well, well I'm, I'm glad Francis Wilson said that because... Um, um, it, it's, a, it's a very, very fair point. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Neil Mukherjee and to Francis Wilson. Do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the paper, which also includes lots of literary criticism from Empson to Sontag to Shakespeare. Or William to Susan to William. <laughs> swimming. Swimming. Shakespeare swimming. Someone <laughs> someone must have done that. Uh, tweet this podcast at FBFM underscore podcast with your comments and thoughts. Please do review us on iTunes. Next week, we're publishing our summer special double issue where we're going to cover subjects as wide ranging as bullshit, Lebanese warlords, solar eclipses, and of course, female swimmers, which is why it's on my mind at the moment. We'll be back both unbronzed and eager to talk about it all with you. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.